Good morning, Mercy Church. How are you guys? And what a what a morning of of worship already, um, man. You guys are incredible singers, and what a gift it is for us to be reminded of the restoring power of Jesus Christ. Providence Road, so good to see you guys this morning. Like I, I'm just excited that we get to spend time opening up the scriptures and hearing from a God who loves us so much. Even just reading John chapter 2, we get a sense to how great extent, of an extent God is willing to take to come and chase us down and show us how much he loves us, right? That he would pursue us. He would pursue us in our sin, pursues us in our weakness. He pursues us in our doubting. And he tells us to come. And he tells us that I'll give you life. He tells us that I'm, I'm worthy to fix the things that are broken. I'll, I'll fix the things that are broken. Come to me. Right? That's, that's who he is. Um, my wife and I, we were, we were talking this morning, or not this morning, earlier this week, and just talking about how much we love coming to worship here with you guys. And what a blessing that's been for our family. And one of the things that we were noting that we, that we enjoy is sitting in this room, right? Sitting in the sanctuary and looking at everybody around us and going, man, there are so many stories in here, right? So many stories of God's redemptive work in our lives. So many stories of God taking marriages that are broken and falling apart and bringing them back together, right? Stories of friendships that have been, been broken and restored. We've seen parents who've watched their kids run after things of this world and God graciously turning their hearts back to him. Right in this room are stories of addictions that have been broken and addictions that are being broken. There's so many stories. And this is what God loves to do. This is what God is doing. He likes to take the things that are broken and he likes to make them whole again. That's what God's doing. And if you're here today, and if you find yourself wondering, is restoration possible for me? Right, as a person, right? Maybe you're coming before God and wondering if God would restore you, or there's something going on in your life, and you wonder if God is able to restore it. And maybe you're feeling a little hopeless. And my hope is that as we walk through John chapter 2, that you would be reminded that this is why Jesus has come. He's come to restore the things that are broken. He's come to restore people's lives who have been broken by sin, and he's come to bring them back into a right relationship with him and a right relationship with others. I believe that this is the big idea that God has for us today as we look at John chapter 2. So as we walk through this chapter, I want you to see that Jesus has the power to transform I want you to see the heart of Jesus to restore us to a right relationship with him. And lastly, I want us to see that Jesus' authority and power to do these things is evidenced through his death and his resurrection. Right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going we're to jump in. Heavenly Father, God, you are worthy of all praise. God, what a gift it is for us to be able to come and gather as the body of Christ. God, to remember our weakness and our failings and to to be reminded that you come to us with grace. 
God, that in Christ we are no longer identified by our sin, but we are known by the righteousness of your son, Jesus. So God, as we read through the scriptures, God, you tell us that your word is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. So God, would you help us to see you this morning? God, would you help us to understand the scriptures that you've given us? It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so in John chapter 2, we're going to see two stories that we're going to talk through, um, and we should have the first 12 verses on the screen, um, or use your Bible. If you're following along in our John book, I apologize, but we dropped in John chapter 3. I don't think I studied the wrong text. I think something happened, but we're going to be in John chapter 2 this morning. So in the first 12 verses, we're at a wedding. Right, we're at a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother is there. Right, this wedding was not like any wedding that you've probably ever been to if you grew up here in the United States. Right, these weddings lasted not just a few hours, but they lasted up to about seven days and sometimes longer. Right, if you're an extrovert, like you would have loved this kind of wedding. Right, people gathered from everywhere. There's all kinds of food, having tons of fun. But something happened, right? Mary, Jesus' mom, becomes aware that the wine is running out. And that's the problem, right? If you're a host and you're hosting a wedding, one of your jobs was to provide for everybody that was there for the duration of the celebration, right? And if you didn't do that or couldn't do that, it could have been a social embarrassment. And so Mary, whether she was a part of the wedding planning committee or, or whatever, she realizes that the wine is running short. And so she comes to Jesus, and she lets him know what's going on. And listen to his response. He says, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Right? At first read, it leaves you scratching your head. Right? It, it sounds a little confusing. And then he called his mom a woman. Right? Like, like who gets to call their mom a woman? Like, could you imagine... Right, you're in your house, and your mom's like, hey, you left, you left your shoes and your socks out in the living room. Could you please get those? And you say, what does that have to do with you and me, woman? <laughs> right? Like, do you think that's going to go well? Like, if I had told my mom that I promise you, like, I probably wouldn't be standing here today. I probably <laughs> wouldn't exist anymore. Right? Like, you would, you would think that the miracle that John's about to tell us is that, that Jesus said this and was still alive. Right? Like, like that was... The miracle, or that it wasn't the Pharisees who were plotting to kill Jesus, it was actually Jesus' mom, right? <laughs> but that's not what's happening, right? This is where it's so helpful for us when we're reading the scriptures for us to consider context, for us to consider culture. Jesus wasn't being disrespectful to his mom when he referred to her as woman. Mary didn't receive it this way, and John's readers didn't read it this way, right? It was actually a respectful way for him to speak to his mom. Right? And it communicated some things that I think are really helpful for us to grasp. Right? This, this, this phrase, even with it, what does that have to do with you and me? This was a Greek expression. It was like an idiom. Right? And sometimes those are hard for us to translate from one language to the next. Um, but it was a phrase used to distinguish between realms or relations. Right? So demons spoke these words when they were confronted by Jesus. It was a distinction of realm. 
right, in relation. So I'm not suggesting here that Jesus is referring to his mom as a demon either. But think about this for a second. Jesus is essentially making a distinction between himself as the son of God and the rest of humanity, right? He's letting us know that he has come from another realm, from heaven, and that his identity comes not from his earthly family, right? You and I have so much of our identity is connected to our parents and where we come from, our earthly family. His identity was connected to his heavenly father, right? His allegiance is first to his heavenly father, and as a result, his concern is not first with the temporal earthly things, but with kingdom things, right? And so and then when he says his hour had not yet come, he's referring to his purpose, right? The purpose for his coming, right? Everything that Jesus did was done with kingdom purpose, right? There's other places in John where, where John records Jesus using language like this, right? In John chapter 7, verse 30, John writes, then they tried to seize him. They tried to seize Jesus, Yet no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then again in John chapter 8, John writes about another situation where they tried to seize him, but they couldn't because his hour had not yet come. And then John chapter 12, Jesus is telling some of his disciples about his coming death, and he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And again in chapter 12, Jesus says that his hour, right, the hour of his death on the cross is the reason that he came. So again, everything was building to this hour when Jesus would bring glory to the Father through the death he would die. So if everything Jesus did had the kingdom of God in mind, then why did he turn the water into wine? Right? If his concern wasn't for the party, what might he be trying to communicate to us? What could be the kingdom purpose? Well, I think it's helpful for us to, to look at, at verse 6, where John tells us that there are six stone water jars, right? Jews would use these jars for ritual cleansing. And since they were always having to purify themselves, right, before they ate, if they came in contact with a Gentile, which is anybody who was not Jewish, or they came in contact with anything that was unclean, they had to, to, to purify themselves. They had to wash themselves, they held up to about 20 to 30 gallons each, right? And there were six of them. So when they were filled to the brim, right, that was 120 to 180 gallons of water. Right? So Jesus tells the servants, he says, to fill these six large stone jars to the brim with water. And then he asked them to draw some out and take it to the head waiter. Right? The head waiter was the one responsible for keeping the party going, right? To keeping it moving, right? And he tastes it and his mind is blown. Right? Normally, people serve, he says, the good wine first, and then afterwards, after they're drunk, they bring out the cheap stuff. He says, but you have saved the best for last. So think about this for a moment. Right? Jesus, he took these jars designated for Old Testament ritual cleansing, and he used them to illustrate the law's insufficiency or inability to actually cleanse. Right? They kept having to go back and back and back again and again to cleanse themselves. It never finally cleansed. That's why they needed so much water. So I believe Jesus is taking this moment to teach his disciples and anyone else paying attention that something new is coming. Right? Something new that's better than the old. You might have heard the phrase before that the Old Testament is like a school teacher pointing us to something new, something better pointing us to grace, right? Jesus here takes something that resembles the Old Testament law and he replaces it with something new. And this new thing 
It's like a loud whisper to us of, of telling us something of who Jesus is, right? It tells us of his power to create, right? In John 1, he turned the water, he turned, in this chapter, he turned the water into wine. And in John 1, we learned that Jesus was God and he had the power to create. Everything was made through him, everything was made for him, and everything was made by him. Right? This shows us right, that he, Jesus, is the source of joy in life. Wine often symbolized joy and blessing from God. And, and third, this shows us that he has the power to transform. Right? Not just water to wine, but as we keep reading throughout John and the rest of Scripture, we find that Jesus has the power to transform our lives. Right? The wine was a symbol of the new life that was to come from Jesus. It was symbolic of a new covenant that God was making with his people, a covenant established by God and fulfilled by God, right, so that we could be forgiven and restored back to a right relationship with him. So because of this new covenant, we can come to God through faith. Right, Paul talks about this. The apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, right, he's a new creation. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. He's come to make things new. Jesus came to fulfill what the law was not able to do, right? He came to give, give life. The law given to Moses in the Old Testament was never meant to save. Its purpose was to show our need for a savior, right? It was meant to serve as a tool to point us to Jesus, who is the only one who can save. And I think Paul helps us get a better grasp of this in Galatians chapter three. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter three. I think we've got it on the screens for you and we'll start in, in verse 19. Paul writes, he says, why then was the law given? It was added for the sake of transgressions until the seed of whom the promise was made would come. Right, in other words, the law was added to show people their sin and their need for the promised Savior. That's why it was given. Right, he goes on. He says, the law was put into effect through angels by means of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not just for one person alone, but God is one. Is the law therefore contrary to God's promises? Absolutely not. For if the law had been granted with the ability to give life, then righteousness would certainly be on the basis of the law. Okay, so if the law was meant to save, then we would be able to earn our salvation through obedience to the law. But the testimony of our lives and the testimony of the world and the scriptures that we look at proves that this is something that can't be done. Right? The point of the law was to show us our inability so that we might turn to the one who is able to meet those righteous requirements. Right? So let's, let's continue. I'm going to read, really, I, I wasn't going to do this, but I think it would be most helpful for me to read 22 through 26. I'm going to finish it on down, follow along. It says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin's power so that the promise might be given on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ to those who believe. Before this faith came, we were confined under the law. Right? We were imprisoned until the coming faith was revealed. So the law then was our guardian until Christ, so that we could be justified by faith. The law was our guardian. It served a purpose, and it's done now. Right? Jesus came. He fulfilled the law. Right? So the law no longer has to guard us. It no longer has to keep us. 
but Jesus has come to free us and to restore us. But since that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, it says. For through faith, you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. This is the new covenant, right? That righteousness is not accomplished through the works of the law, but through repentance and faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus, sent to take away the sins of the world, right? Jesus is preparing his disciples for this reality through something like turning water into wine. You wouldn't have guessed it, right? But over time, God makes this clear, and John is painting this picture slowly, and it's starting to come into focus for us, and we're starting to understand a little bit more with each chapter, right? Secondly, we're going to look at the heart of Jesus, right? This is John 2, 13 through 17. We have a little bit of a scene change here, and we're going to get a glimpse of the heart of Jesus to restore us back to a right relationship with God. And we're going to see his heart for the glory of God and his heart for all people. So after the wedding, Jesus and his disciples headed down to Capernaum and then to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. So in verse 13, John writes, the Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of, the cor- out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers, coins, and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. All right, now the Passover was an annual celebration, right, to help them remember to remember God's faithfulness to deliver the Israelites from the hands of the Egyptians, right? This was the biggest celebration of the year. It's kind of like our Easter or when we celebrate communion. It is an intentional time set aside for them to remember God's deliverance. And Jesus comes in and he totally disrupts the whole thing, right? Their biggest celebration, their biggest moment of the year, Jesus comes in and he disrupts the whole thing. Right? The religious leaders had turned the outer courts, also known as the court of the Gentiles, into something that was like a flea market. It was supposed to be a place of worship, but they turned it into a marketplace. Right? This was the only place that foreigners, people who, who were non-Jewish, could come and worship. And they had made it not a worshipful place. They were selling animals to be sacrificed and basically turning what was supposed to be a house of worship into, for all nations into a chaotic marketplace. And we know throughout scripture that God's heart is for the nations. God's heart is that his desire is that every person from every tongue, tribe, and nation would come and worship him as God. And so when he steps into this, he's grieved because this is not at all what he desires for his people. This wasn't anything that was honoring to God. And so you can kind of see him standing over in the corner, right? Taking these cords and weaving them together, going, all right, it's time, right? And he gets this cord and he goes through and he, and he drives out the animals, right? He flips over the tables. So out of zeal for God's house, John writes, he does this. Right? And as the disciples are watching Jesus cleanse the temple, they remember another king from the Psalms, another king who was zealous 
and passionate for God, who endured persecution because of his zeal for God. Jesus was zealous and passionate for the glory of God and for the hearts of God's people. God has always been most concerned with the heart of his people. Actions flow from the heart. What we do flows from the heart. From the heart, the mouth speaks. So God has always been less concerned about what it is that we bring to offer. In the Old Testament, they had this system, but that wasn't his main concern, what type of animal. There were regulations, sure, but his concern was for their heart. Micah, the Old Testament prophet, gets at this. In Micah chapter 6, he writes this in verse 6. He says, what should I bring before the Lord when I come to bow before God on high? Should I come before him with burnt offerings, with year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 streams of oil? Should I give my firstborn for my transgression, the offspring of my body for my own sin? Is that what God wants? Right? Does he just want what you have to oppress you? To take from you? He goes on in verse 8. says, Mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what it is the Lord requires of you. He says, To act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Right? It's basically, Micah basically just, just gave us the great commandment, right? To love God and to love others. Right? When we're loving God most, we will love people best. Right? When we're walking humbly with God, we will do what is just and love faithfulness. Right? Jesus loved God most, so he was willing to step into the temple and clean house in order to love people best. When we lose zeal and passion for God, the only thing we have left is to become zealous for ourselves. And that's when we make decisions like these Jewish leaders had. That's when we end up trying to use the name of God to oppress others and elevate ourselves. And rather than build the kingdom of God, we find ourselves in opposition to the kingdom of God. So the Jewish leaders came up to him. This is the sign of Jesus. The Jewish leaders came up to him and said, what sign will you show us for doing these things? They wanted to know what authority he had, right? It makes sense, right? They're, they're, they're watching this guy come in They're not really sure who he is, and he is just upsetting the entire thing. So they want to know, what authority does he have? They didn't know who he was. Their hearts were were hardened to the point where they didn't seem to be under any conviction for what was going on, and they were just fresher that he'd come. And Jesus answered them, and he said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And they look at him and say, this temple? It took 46 years to build. Will you raise it up in three days? Right? They didn't get it. The Jewish leaders didn't get what Jesus was saying. They were thinking about the physical temple they were standing in, and it was an amazing temple. Right? Herod had had worked hard to make this temple look beautiful because he wanted to be in good favor with the Jews. And it took him 46 years to build it, nearly a half century. It would have been ridiculous to think that somebody could destroy it and then build it in three days. But it's even more incomprehensible to think that Jesus wasn't talking about a physical building. He was talking about his body. 
So what was the sign of his authority to cleanse the temple? It was his death and his resurrection. Right? In Romans 1, Paul says that Jesus was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The ultimate proof that Jesus wasn't just a gimmicky magician was his resurrection from the dead. This is what John is trying to help us see. This is where he's taking us. Right? In chapter 1, he tells us that, tells us that this Jesus that he's talking about is the Messiah that we've been waiting for. He calls him the Lamb of God who was sent to take away the sins of the world. Then in chapter two, we have a wedding, right? Jesus gives us a sign that something new is coming, a new covenant, a new way for God to interact with his people and for them to interact with him. And his covenant would be brought about and established by God himself. Then we have the Passover, the cleansing of the temple. This new covenant that Jesus is bringing is going to restore our worship. It's going to bring us back into a right relationship with him based not on our works or our sacrifice, but based on Jesus' sacrifice, his righteousness. And the sign that Jesus would give to prove his deity and authority to do this would be his coming death and resurrection. This was the hour Jesus' life was building towards. And this was a hard thing for them to grasp, right? Right? Like, how would you grasp this in the moment? They heard it, and in verse 22 of, of John 2, it tells them it, was, it wasn't until his crucifixion that they remembered this incident, right? that they remembered this, these sayings of Jesus. And I think if we think about it, that there's a lot of things that God makes known to us in the moment, but doesn't reveal their significance to us until later. But what I've learned from reading through the scriptures and I've even observed in my own life is that God can be trusted with the things that we can't understand. The things that are too difficult for us to grasp. Right? The Jewish leaders, the disciples didn't really grasp what Jesus was communicating here, but they knew it was something different. Right? And in time, God was going to reveal it. Mercy, I, I don't know where you are in your relationship with Jesus right now. Like, I don't know if there are things that may be causing you to question or doubt what God is doing. But I do know and trust in my heart of hearts that he's able to be trusted. Know that you can trust him. And nothing he does is without purpose. Right? So if you are here this morning and you have yet to trust God with your life, he invites you to come and see that he's good. Right? I encourage you, talk with the person you came with. Talk with somebody sitting next to you. Right? Talk with somebody on staff. And we want you to see that Jesus is the son of God who has the power to restore and make new. Right? He has the power to take the things that are broken and to make them new. And one day, the scriptures tell us everything will be made new, complete, final. Sin will be done away with. Right? Tears will be wiped away from our eyes. There will be no grieving and sorrow and pain. And, and everything that we look at that's broken and fallen, everything that doesn't meet expectations or, or leaves us wanting more will be done away with and we'll be completely satisfied in Christ only for those who are in Christ. And so now is a time 
where God is so graciously making himself known to us through creation, through the scriptures, through relationships, and he's telling you to come. He's telling us to come. To come and find life, to come and find hope, to come and know that we are not alone, that we have a heavenly father who made us, heavenly father who knows us, heavenly father who knows what we need, and he knows right where you are. That's who we serve. So we're about to close our time, and I'm going to pray. But it's a really cool morning to be able to, to celebrate another story. Right here in a moment, we're going to celebrate another story, a baptism of someone who is at one point far from God, has now been brought near to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you're so good. You're so good to make yourself known to us. In our minds, we we can't grasp so many things. There are so many things that we can't grasp, things we can't understand. But God, you are patient with us. God, and your spirit enables us to see. God, would you help us to see? God, would you help us to trust the things that don't make sense Help us to trust those things to you, knowing that you are able to hold all things together, that you are able to to fix, to restore, to make new. God, thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.